Well, if you brought a Bible to church, uh, then I invite you once more. It is my honor and privilege to invite you to the book of 1 Peter. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1. And what I want to do to begin the service this morning is to read the passage we're going to be working in. I want to begin reading actually at verse 6 and read down to verse 12. If you uh, don't have a Bible or you didn't bring one with you, then you're welcome to the one in the pew ahead of you. We'll be on page 702 of the Pew Bible. First Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 6, and I'm going to read down to verse 12. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Would you pray with me? Father, incline our hearts to hear your voice through your word. I ask God that you would do now in the next 45 minutes what I am incapable of doing. Speak your word to your people in a way that would cause faith and fruitfulness to spring up out of their life. Father, I thank You that this Word has been transmitted down through the generations to us so that we can marvel and wonder at the glory of our God and the grace that He has shown us. In Jesus Christ, would you speak to us, Father, in your word, for the glory of your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Cornerstone said, Amen. Not long after the first century, the writings of the apostles were copied and, and began to circulate around the Christian churches everywhere they had been planted. Meticulous care was taken to copy these letters, and they were gathered together into one collection. 
By the end of the 5th century, the Bible had been translated into 500 languages. But the church in Rome only approved of one translation, and, and that translation is called the Latin Vulgate. By 600 AD, anyone found possessing a non-Latin version of the Bible was killed. The problem was that by that time, Latin was already a dead language, so only the educated elite were able to read it and understand it, which meant the common person had no access to the Scriptures to read, to study, and understand. Thus began a time in history known as the Dark Ages. By 1384, an Oxford professor by the name of John Wycliffe illegally completed the world's first English translation of the Bible. Wycliffe was later declared a heretic for having done so, and copies of his Bible were ordered to be burned. One of Wycliffe's followers, a man named John Nuss, promoted Wycliffe's ideas. He believed that the people ought to have the Bible in their native language, promoted this idea, and for this, William Huss, John Huss rather, was burned at the stake, and confiscated Wycliffe Bibles were used as the kindling they used to burn him. But God's Word would not stop. And 200 years later, a man named William Tyndale translated the Greek manuscript of the New Testament into English. He was strangled and burned at the stake. But copies of the Tyndale Bible, carrying a sentence of death, continued to circulate throughout the churches. And upon his death, William Tyndale cried out to God, Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. And God would answer his prayer. Not many years later, King Henry VIII made it a, a decree that the English Bible might be sold and read by every person without danger. Since Wycliffe and John Huss and William Tyndale, thousands more have given their lives for a proper translation of the 66-book collection that you hold in your lap today. Thousands have died to bring this book to you. Just In fact, last month, there was... Uh, there were some translators in the Middle East who were working on translating the Bible into eight different languages, and armed men broke into their office and opened fire on them and destroyed their printing equipment, killed four people, and burned everything they had. Only the head translator, uh, one of the only people to survive that attack was the head translator, and he only survived because a couple of the other translators used their body to shield him to keep him alive. Those who did survive that attack just last month have decided to stay in the Middle East and finish the job. That happened last month. I tell you this because I want you to know the cost of the Bible you read. You may have only paid $20 for it on Amazon.com, but the cost of this book is priceless. It may have been printed with ink, but it was received and translated and copied with blood and with tears. I tell you this because as you sit here today, you are the fruit 
of those, those many who died to bring you the grace of Jesus Christ as explained in the Scriptures that we read. God brought you this message of salvation by grace through faith, through the blood and the sweat and the tears of His own Son. And countless others over the years have believed the message of the Bible was so precious that it was worth giving their very lives for. It was so precious that it was worth making their own children orphans, making their own spouses widows to put the Bible into the hands of those who are lost. The sermon is called The Preciousness of Grace because of this reason. The next three verses that we've just now read in 1 Peter 1 are a bit of a digression. Peter is calling these elect exiles to look down the road, to look back, to see God's messengers who have walked that path to bring the gospel to them. And so we're going to spend the next 40 minutes or so looking at these three verses. And my hope and my prayer by God's grace is that we'll be able to see why the apostle felt it necessary when speaking to these elect exiles to speak to them and to say what he did in those three verses. Why make this digression? Why would God the Holy Spirit mean for us to gaze and wonder at the preciousness of grace that cost him so much? And so with that in mind, let's get to work in 1 Peter chapter 1. Concerning this salvation... The Apostle Peter began this letter to elect exiles, soaring in praise for what God had done. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, just soaring in praise for what God has done for us, what God continues to do for us. He uses 10 verses to explain why he begins this letter by praising. And it's not, and and until we understand what came before verses 10 through 11, or 10, 11, and 12, unless we understand 3 through 9, we'll miss the importance of Peter's digression in verse 10, 11, and 12. So I want to take a couple minutes and just review a little bit of what we've already went through in these first verses in this chapter. Peter is soaring in praise because of what God has done. These faithful band of Christians, which are spread throughout Asia Minor, are undergoing persecution and marginalization as followers of Jesus. And Peter explains that persecution and suffering These grievous trials that they're undergoing are not accidental, they're not empty, and they're certainly not meaningless. These hardships are happening under the very hand of God Himself, the very caring hand of God Himself. These grievous trials are difficult and suffering is no fun, but they are meant to produce in these people trust and dependence and reliance on Christ alone, which Jesus, when He comes back, will receive praise and glory and honor because of the faith that comes and ultimately the faith that God is working in us will lead to the very salvation of our souls. Peter is encouraging them ensuring them that God is still on the throne in the middle of your trials, in the middle of your suffering. Nothing is happening by accident or outside of His 
controls. And the source of joy that he encourages them with is that, that they know that God is in control, that God is working in them faith that will result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus returns. That we are the recipients of this faith and we are the beneficiaries of this faith. I'm convinced of this. A hundred million years from now, when we look back on this life, we will see all the suffering, grievous though it may have been, we will look at it and we will see what God was doing in working in our life, a dependence and a trust in Him that results in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ and in an inheritance that is imperishable, unfading and kept in glory for you. We will look back a hundred million years from now on these light momentary afflictions and we will soar with praise like Peter does in the first few words of this letter. We will see what our God has done. And so as we come to verse 10, our heads may be spinning in awestruck wonder, looking at what God has done to bring this grace to us, this gift of precious grace. This gift is precious, but this gift is also perplexing. Verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Peter mentions prophets who prophesied, who searched and inquired about what the nature of this prophecy that was being given to them. What was the nature? Who was it that they were speaking about? Who are these prophets Peter's mentioning. The prophets were a select group of individuals that God chose to speak His Word to His people. He would use them to speak to His people. These are the Old Testament prophets that many of you are familiar with. Moses and Samuel and Elijah and Isaiah and Daniel. There's something like 70 or more prophets mentioned in the Bible. A large portion of the first half of your Bible were written by these men. God, the Holy Spirit, uses men and women to speak to His people. Often they would give words of advice on spiritual matters. Sometimes they would give advice on national matters. Often they called people on their sin. Then they would call them to repentance. And occasionally, they would prophesy of events so mysterious that had not come to, pl- come to pass yet, that they themselves didn't even know what it was they were prophesying about. God tells Isaiah, for example, about a sinless man crushed by God, sin to, to, to bear the sins of all the people, and God would offer this perfect man as a sacrifice for His people. And the prophet Isaiah died never having known of whom he wrote. The exiled prophet Daniel saw a man in the clouds, and he describes him as like the Son of Man, and that man is presented to God himself on the throne, and that man is given power and dominion and authority and a kingdom which goes on forever. The dominion over that kingdom never ends. And Daniel died wondering who it was he saw in that vision. King David 
wrote songs about a man who would die, but his body would never see corruption, who would suffer at the hands of Gentiles, whose clothing would be cast lots for. And a message of righteousness that comes from this man will get proclaimed to people not yet born. He wrote another song about this man, about some kind of strange connection with the priesthood according to some strange priest named Melchizedek. And David died, never knowing about whom he sang. These prophets, Peter says, searched and inquired carefully, wondering what sort of person this was. Who was this man? What was this grace? They were speaking about. Why would this man suffer? What glories would come after his suffering? And so these prophets combed carefully through God's word and they came up with a foggy picture like the silhouette of a man in a dark room. And they died before the light switch ever got flipped on. It's sort of like God gave the prophets. One little, two little, three little jigsaw pieces of a gigantic puzzle. And they would look at their pieces and they would gaze and wonder at how beautiful it was that God had given them this piece. But they didn't have all of the pieces. They just had a portion. And they would wonder and they would worship and they would speculate and they would seek God to understand. And as they searched, God revealed something to them in verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who have preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. God showed them that their little piece of the jigsaw puzzle was one little piece, a a part of many pieces, meant to be joined together over the ages by God the Holy Spirit and given to preachers to preach the gospel to a people who had not yet been born. That God was using them not for themselves, but God was using them for those who would come after them. They were just one part and a long succession of men and women who would give their lives in service of God's mission to preach His gospel throughout the earth. So what is Peter saying to these elect exiles? He's saying your suffering, your little part in suffering for Christ is not minuscule or minor or meaningless. It's a necessary component that God means to use to declare His greatness of glory and grace among the nations. That you don't serve yourself, you are serving those coming after. These prophets, they were given that jigsaw piece. And it was difficult to understand what it is and where it goes. And wonder though they did, they didn't see it all. Until God joined all the pieces together. All the little jigsaw pieces of all the prophets that had come before. And when you, when you put them all together and you draw the camera back, what you see is the glory of God revealed 
in the gospel. A 1,300-year-old piece by Moses put together with a 900-year-old piece of David, put together with a 700-year-old piece from the prophet Isaiah, put together with a 500-year-old piece from the prophet Daniel, and you get to see what God was doing. You connect it all together and pull the camera back, and this is what you see. God wrapping himself in human flesh, born of a virgin teenager, living among his own people, teaching them his truth, perfect life of a man without sin, leading, being led by like a lamb to be slaughtered, and sinful men would brutalize him and shame him and mock him, and eventually they would kill him. And all of this was according to the definite plan of God to pay the penalty of sins for all the people, to heal all the diseases, to bear all the shame of all his people. They would bury this man in a tomb of a rich man, and three days later he would rise from death to glory and honor and praise and receive that kingdom that Daniel saw that is without end. Jesus was the man Moses saw. Jesus was the man about whom David sang. Jesus was the one suffering in Isaiah 53. Jesus was the Son of Man in Daniel's vision. The jigsaw puzzles reveal Jesus Christ in His glory and His suffering. The Bible is all about Jesus. So Jesus would speak to the Jews In John 5, 39, and he would say, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that write about me. You know, the greatest sermon ever preached was preached to two disillusioned disciples who were unnamed on their way from Jerusalem to the town called Emmaus. After Jesus comes back to life in the resurrection, he appears to these two guys. In Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 24, he tells us this about what Jesus did with those two men. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Greatest sermon ever preached. We don't hear one word of it. He speaks it to two guys and doesn't even give them a name. The whole Bible is about the grace of God in Christ Jesus. In verse 12 here, this is what Peter is saying. That these men of God, these apostles, these disciples, they were given, these prophets rather, they were given these little pieces of a puzzle. So that generations after them, This puzzle would be put together by the apostles in Jesus' life by seeing all of this. This is why you read through uh, Matthew and you see all the time, this was done so that this would be be in fulfillment of this prophecy. And Jesus did this in accordance to this prophecy. All the jigsaw puzzles being put together by the apostles so that you would hear the preaching of the gospel and be saved. They were not serving themselves. They were serving you. The law and the prophets were all about Jesus. I think Peter learned this on the Mount of Transfiguration. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but I'm going to read to you 
an account, a very important, we're going to take a little excursion into the life of the Apostle Peter. I want to show you something very significant that happened in Peter's life, which I think was the thing that God used for him to begin to understand what he wrote in our passage this morning. Luke chapter 9, beginning at verse 28. Luke 9, 28. Now, about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. Now, I have no idea how they knew it was Moses and Elijah. Maybe God gave them name tags. Maybe they just knew it. Somehow they just knew. This was Moses. This was Elijah. But Moses and Elijah come to Jesus, and they're talking with him. Verse 31, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they had became fully awake... They saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that he, he didn't even know what to do. He puts his, this is the kind of guy, he's just, he's going crazy. He has no idea what to do. This is just such an overwhelming experience in his life. And he says, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said. Thank you, Luke. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Verse 35, listen to what happens here. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Moses, in Matthew's account, Matthew's, Matthew has the same account in his gospel, and he says this, when they lifted up their eyes, the disciples lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Moses, as a representative of the law, and Elijah, as a representative of the prophets, were speaking to Jesus about the cross. I think it's on the mountain that Peter learned that the law and the prophets were all about Jesus. They were all there to point us to Jesus about the glorious grace of his gospel. I think that's where Peter learned what to write in verse 12 of our passage. The prophets were not serving themselves they were serving God's greater mission to demonstrate His glory in the cross of Jesus Christ. I think that's what Peter learned on the mountain. Here's the reason I think that. Let's go back to the writings of Peter. This time, instead of going to his first letter, let's go to his second letter. Second Peter chapter 1. I want you to see this. I've put the slide up here because I want you to read this with me. If you're using a pew Bible, we'll be on page 705. Something very significant about Peter's life happened. 
Something very significant about the way he understands the world happened in Peter's life on that mountain. This experience he had with God on that mountain, with Jesus and and Moses and Elijah, was extremely significant in his life. So let's read it. First Peter, Second Peter, chapter one, beginning at verse sixteen. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Otherwise, other words, he's saying, I didn't make this up. There's reasons I want you to believe what I'm saying. I want, there's reasons I want you to believe what I'm saying is actually true. I'm not making this up. That's what he's saying. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty, eyewitnesses firsthand. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father and from the voice that was born to Him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the mountain. We ourselves heard this very voice. Peter's experience on the Mount of Transfiguration was mind-blowing. He heard the voice of God the Father, the voice, it's the same voice that came out of the burning bush to Moses. It's the same voice that spoke to God's people from Sinai, freaked everyone out. It's the same voice that said, let there be light, and there was light. That same voice, Peter hears it on the mountain. Tremendous experience, life-changing experience. And what Peter says next, what Peter says next, Cornerstone, is staggering. I, I don't, what I'm about to read, you may not even actually believe what I'm going to read here. You may leave here wondering if that's even in the Bible. Maybe that's a mistranslation. It doesn't make sense. Why would Peter say what he's about to say? It is staggering. You ready? And... We have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Something more sure, the prophetic word. I, I don't know if you caught what Peter is saying here. He goes up the mountain with Jesus, and he sees Jesus in glory. His face is shining. He sees Moses shining. He sees Elijah shining. Best of all, God himself shows up in a cloud and speaks the thunderous voice of God the Father. What an experience! But what Peter finds more certain, more reliable, more trustworthy than his experience on the mountain, the Bible. 
Peter finds the Bible more reliable, more sure than firsthand experience hearing God the Father's voice spoken to His Son and to them. How much more credence should we place in this book? (laughs) Dear brothers and sisters, don't rely on experiences with God more than the Word of God. Don't rely on experiences with God more than the Word of God. If anyone had a reason to bring credence to an experience, most certainly it was the three men who went with Jesus on that mountain. And yet one of those three comes back to say, I have something more sure than that experience. And it is the 66 books inside this Bible. The light shining in the dark night of your suffering is this book. These are the words of eternal life. Cling to them. Digest them. Absorb yourself in Let these words be on your mind. Let them be in your heart. Let them be in your lips all the days of your life. Praise God for His blessings of experience. Praise God when God does give you visions. Praise God when God does give you dreams. But friends, there is nothing more certain and assuring and stabilizing and trustworthy than the words contained in this Bible. Experiences will be marred with time, as glorious as they may be, even mountaintop transfiguration kind of experiences are not to be trusted like the Word of God. The heavens and the earth will pass away, but these words will never pass away. So we come to our early question. Why take this digression Why would the Apostle Peter, in the limited time and space that he has to speak to these elect exiles, why would he use this time to talk about the Scriptures? I think it's because Peter knew the unquestionable necessity for these people to have a life in the Word of God. It is vital. It is essential. It is necessary. This, this book is life my fellow exiles. Recall the stories that I shared with you at the beginning. Recall the cost that your God has paid with the lives of His own people to bring you the Bible. Why would something that is so important to Him, for which He's willing to spend the very blood of His own servants, Why would it be such value to them and such little value to us? 
Why would something he's willing to lay down the lives of his own people to bring to you have such little value to you? Friends, I'm speaking to myself. What about this book is not enough? Why would we spend our lives searching after so many other ways to connect with God, to hear God, when He has spilled the blood of His own Son and thousands more to make sure that this year, this Sunday, you have His Word. I want to say this as gently and as lovingly as I can. As your pastor, there are no insufficiencies in this book. This book is sufficient. Everything you need about life, godliness, everything you need to know about your God is in this book. Everything you need to hear from your God is in this book. You needn't go anywhere else. This is sufficient. Any insufficiencies you feel in this book are not from this book, but in an understanding of what this book is. It is living. It is alive. It is active. My concern is that we treat the Bible like it's a supplement to our walk with Christ. We read a little bit here, we read a little bit there. When crisis comes, we read more. We just little here and little there, like we take vitamins in the morning. Don't, don't ever approach the Scriptures like an athlete approaches multivitamin supplements. Approach the Scriptures like a poisoned man looking for an antidote to his dying flesh. That's what this is. These are the words of eternal life. Read them. Read them often. Memorize them. Don't go to the Scriptures. Live in the Scriptures. May the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. I have one more thing to say, and then I'll wrap. If you're taking notes, you can write some of these things down in the back of your handout. Along with the price of grace and the preciousness of grace, I would like to point out that there's also a privilege of grace. What we've learned today in 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, is that God has spent the lives of countless others to bring the gospel to us. And if you are a Christian today, if you are in Christ today, then you have received grace, which means you also have the privilege of joining with those who have come before you to serve the message of the gospel being proclaimed to those who come after you. This is your privilege. Every follower of Jesus has the privilege of being a disciple maker. So serve the next generation. It is the privilege of every follower of Christ to make disciples. So I want to leave you with a handful of ways to do this. Just a handful of ways that you can serve the next generation, that you can 
Get in line with those who have come before you to bring you the reliable, trustworthy, uh, inerrant Word of God and how you can serve those who come after. Share the gospel. Share the Bible in these ways. Ready? First one. Share the Bible with your spouse. If God has given you a husband or a wife, share the Bible with them. The... uh, The book of Ephesians tells husbands to wash their their wife with the water of the Word. It's just a command to wash your wife, just to share the Bible with your spouse. Another way, share the Bible with your kids. If God has gifted you children, you have the privilege, you have the honor of being able to share the Bible with your kids. Dads have the responsibility of being the leader in family worship situations. But share the Bible. Moms and dads both share the Bible. I've heard stories of some of you reading the Bible to your children. And my heart rejoices when you do that. You're sharing with the next generation. Love hearing about that. Another way. Share the Bible with one another. Share the Bible with one another. You have the privilege of sharing the Bible with your brothers and sisters that you meet with on a weekly basis. That's why we're doing discipleship groups. You can go study the Bible. Everybody studies the same area of the Bible, and then you come together and you just share with what the Lord showed you in His Word. You encourage one another. Uh, Titus chapter 2 says the older women are to teach the younger women. That's a beautiful way of sharing the Bible with each other. Older men teach the younger men. Older women teach the younger women. The generations interacting with one another to teach the Bible to one another. Investing in the next generation of gospel bearers. It's a beautiful thing. Another way. Share the Bible with unbelievers. God has placed you where you work for a reason. And I would submit to you that the reason, the second reason he has you there is to make money. And the first reason he has you there is to share the gospel. You understand, God, could, God doesn't need you working where you work to provide for you. But he's given you a job so that you can provide for your family. That's to be sure. But it's also so that you can reach those you get to work with. Share the gospel with unbelievers. Invite them to church. Take them to lunch afterwards. Talk about the sermon afterwards. Ask them questions afterwards. You know, do I have time? You know what? I don't do altar calls. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. A lot of churches like ours, they do altar calls. There's a couple of reasons why I don't do altar calls. I don't know if I've ever just explained it to you. One of them is theological. The other one is practical. The practical one is because I don't want you to ever think that somebody that you bring to church needs me to find Jesus. You brought him to church. You lead him to Jesus. You don't need me. I'm 
preaching the Bible. I'll proclaim the gospel. You go out to dinner with them after, and you say, hey, what'd you think? What do you think about what he said there? What do you think about the Bible? Did you read that? I don't know about what that means, but what do you think? And talking to them and seeing and feeling them out to see where they are and sharing the gospel with them over lunch, that's everyone's privilege, not just mine. So I don't do altar calls. I'm not going to take that away from you. What a privilege you have to reach your friends and your family and your neighbors and the people you work with. Why would I ever want to take that away from you? Because that's one of the reasons why we don't do altar calls. Last one. This is where we're at. Last one. Share the Bible with the nations. Share the Bible with the nations. There's a couple of ways you can do that. You can support uh, gospel-preaching missionaries who are in-country working for the sake of the gospel there. You can support them. You can support them directly, financially, or you can... You can support them indirectly through our church. You can see the list back there. That's one way. Another way would be to, to support financially those organizations which are translating the Scriptures into the languages that don't have the Scriptures yet. You can support those. There's a number of them out there. If you don't know what they are, see me after. I can put you, put you in contact with them. Another way you can share the gospel with the nations is you can go. It's like Courtney's going to go, just like Pete Binkley's going to go. They're going to go into the nations to share the gospel. That's another way. The point is, everyone plays a part. Corey, you can come on back. Join the ranks of men like the Apostle Peter, like Wycliffe, like Huss, like Tyndale, like those who gave their lives to translate the Bible last month. Join those ranks as the privilege you have from grace. Let's stand to our feet. I'm going to read the passage again, and I'm going to give you the opportunity. As we read, I'm going to pray, and Corey's going to do another song, and you're going to have the opportunity this morning to confess any sins that maybe come up as we're reading the Scriptures. So as we went through these verses, maybe the Lord was convicting you that you haven't been sharing the gospel. You've been wasting that privilege. Maybe just afraid of having a bold faith. Maybe just afraid of what might happen. Maybe you're afraid of your reputation. You share the gospel. Maybe you were convicted as we went through these words of seeing the cost that Jesus paid to get you the Bible and how negligent you've been in reading it, studying it, immersing yourself in it. And so I'm going to read these verses and give you the opportunity to confess your sins to the Lord. You don't have to tell me what they are. You don't have to confess to me. The Bible says that if you confess your sins, that He is faithful and just to forgive you of those sins and to cleanse you of unrighteousness. But if you do that, if you pray and you confess your sins as we read this again, I don't want you to leave here without a resolution that I'm going to read the Bible. It's not just words on a page. It's alive. It's authoritative. It's real. Concerning this salvation, 
The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Father, we are recipients of this grace. We are recipients of this Bible. We are recipients of those who have come before us and preached the gospel to us. And this whole miracle that you have done on the cross for our sins is so wonderful that even angels can't understand it. We ask you, Father, that you would convict us of our lackluster approach to the Scriptures. I ask that you would convict me of not scheduling time in the Word better, of not seeking the Lord in His Word better. And I ask that you would give us grace as we go from this place, trusting in the more surer, more reliable prophetic Word that we would develop a life with you in the Scriptures. In Jesus' name we pray.